<laughs> hey, we're going to begin a brand new series today called Attitudes to Master Life. How to do life really good, to get the most out of it. And today we'll be talking about the attitude of commitment. Why do you think it is that intelligence, your IQ, is such a poor indicator of how well people are going to do at life? All of us know really bright people who end up in terrible marriages, terrible work situations, who become relational disasters. But we also know people who are not real high on the IQ end of the spectrum, but they far outshine those who are in the way they approach life. Wonder why that is. Several years ago, Daniel Goleman wrote a very influential book called Emotional Intelligence. And he does a very thorough review of research in the social science over the last 20 years. He concludes that, and I quote, doing well at life is more often due to a whole other set of abilities that are not measured by your IQ. Things like your ability to tolerate frustration, like get married, to motivate yourself so that when you start a task, you complete it, to empathize with other people, to be able to read their emotions, and to be able to communicate effectively. So one experience he cites in the book is called the Marshmallow Experiment, and it involves little kids, the offer of candy, and their ability to delay gratification. This marshmallow experiment was first done 25 years ago with four-year-old preschool kids. Researchers divided them into grab the marshmallow now group and the group that was able to delay gratification. Then these kids were tracked for 25 years. They discovered that those who were able to delay gratification at age four, as they grew up, became more socially competent, able to make decisions more easily, developed high self-esteem, had less anger problems, and they were more able to persist than the group of grab the marshmallow now kids. The SAT scores of the kids able to delay gratification was on average about 210 points higher than the scores of the kids who wanted the marshmallow right now. So those who couldn't control impulses at age four grew up to have more relational problems, were more likely to end up in jail, and the girls in that group were more likely to end up having teenage pregnancies, and all of this detectable at age four. Wow. See, this emotional intelligence Goldman speaks of is referred to in the Bible as a mindset, or a better word, attitude. It's a way of thinking. Let me, let me mention this. It says, let this mind be in you that was in Christ. Okay, what does that mean? His way of thinking, his perspective on life, his attitude. So God says, I'd like for you, above your American mind, your Caucasian, Hispanic, African-American, or Asian mind, your, your parents, your background, your neighborhood, above all that, I'd like you to think the way I think. Let that mind that I have, my way of thinking, my attitude, be in you. And regardless of what culture, race, or gender we came from, we'd end up being quite similar 
in our values and attitudes. We would. It wouldn't be based on music taste or clothing or our food that we like. We'd have that distinction. But we would have the way he sees people, the way he sees life, the way he sees value. We'd all see it the same way. I'm not going to let a political group tell me how I think. I'm not going to let any group or race tell me how I have to think or who I can love or what I can do. But I will let Christ dictate that. And when I go through the New Testament, I want to line up with him. I don't want to line up with a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent or a white, a black, or a Hispanic, because they could be way off base. So I'm trying to push at you a little bit to say, how about thinking like Jesus? That's what I'm trying to say. Be who you are, but let those attitudes you have about life, about marriage, let them be dictated by Jesus. And that attitude has the power to change your life. I can't always change my circumstances. Some of you can't change your boss, your spouse, your kids, your finances, or your background. But you can change what goes on in your mind. You and I can change that. So this morning I want to look at the attitude of commitment. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, if you got a Bible. Whatever your hand finds for you to do, do it with all your strength. Now, that attitude involves giving yourself diligently to the task at hand. It involves determination, persistence, being highly intentional, being willing to say no to immediate gratification on occasion. And folks, that could be called the road less traveled because the opposite of this attitude is to drift along the path of least resistance. You never go beyond the daily minimum requirements. You avoid challenges. You avoid being stretched. You don't want to have to change, having to grow. You just seek to get by. Now, let me give you three words that can change your walk and transform your life. They are the ultimate challenge for every human being. And those three words are, and then some, and then some. It's doing what's expected, what you should do, and then a little more, and then some. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your strength. Now, if you'll turn to Genesis 24, I want you to meet an and then some person, and it's a gal. Abraham's an old man. His wife, Sarah, has died. It's time for his son, Isaac, to be married, and the entire future of the nation of Israel rides on this marriage. So Abraham's got to find a great wife. How's he going to do it? There's no single bars, no computer dating services, no newspapers to place a personal ad, you know, attractive nomad with excellent prospects, searching for a female that likes to travel. No, you can't do it that way. Not then. The custom was for the parents to find the spouse and then say to the son, this is who you're going to marry. Now, the older I get, the better that sounds. (coughs) All the parents said amen. Yeah. So Abraham calls his most trusted servant Eliezer, and he tells him the future of Israel needs a wife. She needs to be a person of great character, somebody who can be faithful to God, and somebody who can be one with Isaac. This is an important assignment, Eliezer. Don't mess it up. So the servant accepts the commission. He takes 10 camels loaded with gifts. By the way, By the way, for some of you from ultra-legalistic Pentecostal background, those 10 camels are carrying fine silks, fabrics, 
jewelry, diamonds, and gold, all for this woman that's going to be chosen. Ten camels full of, how'd you like to have a jewelry collection like that? Yeah. Well, for some of you, it'd be just the nice choice to use lipstick. Okay, I'm the, I'll move on. So after a long journey, 500 miles, a servant comes to the city of Nahor at evening, and he kneels down to pray. He asked God to grant him success on his mission, and he asked God for a sign. He says, let it be the girl I asked for a cup of water who says to me, she will also water my ten camels. Now, pause a minute, because it was customary culture to offer a stranger a cup of water. No merit badge, nothing... uh, nothing above the normal. Everybody got a cup of water. Any stranger, that was the norm, okay? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't anything exemplary. Everybody got a cup of water. That was the custom. But he's got 10 camels, and he's going to throw that in the mix. That's different, okay? So he waits. Don't know how long he waited, but a girl named Rebecca shows up to the well to draw water, and she captures Eliezer's attention. So she must have been a looker. The Bible says she was a woman of pure character. She was very fair to look upon. The Hebrew translates that she was a righteous babe. (laughs) You know, the King James Bible was translated in 1611 in a Victorian culture, and they calmed it down. But it isn't calmed down. And so she's a hottie, and he, but that still doesn't qualify her, okay? That's not, that's, not the, that's not the deal breaker here. So Rebecca lowers her jar into the well and gives Eliezer a drink, as he asked, as is the culture. Then she says, and I will draw water for your camels also till they have finished drinking. Now you can Google this, but 10 camels, 40 gallons each, that's 400 gallons of water. And she offers to do it without being asked to do it. Now, this gal's got some serious biceps, and she's got some time. But here's the punchline. Rebecca did everything that could be reasonably expected of her, and then a little more, and then some. And it was the and then some that made all the difference that changed her life and destiny forever. You know, when stinking camels show up in your life, water them. You don't know these may be the ones that take you to a destiny. She could never know that. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your strength. Now, can you imagine the transformation that would occur in your job, in your marriage, with your children, your health, your finances, your soul, if you decided to become an and-then-some kind of person? And you can do this. I'd like to move everybody today from just being informed to being transformed. That's when the gospel's working. So today, you know, well, tomorrow, I guess, you're going to go to work. And even if you got a cranky boss and you're doing routine tasks you've done for years, determine just for a day, I'm going to water the camels too. I'll do everything reasonably expected of me and then some, a little bit more. (laughs) Wives, we're at the end of the NFL season. Today is the Super Bowl. What if when your husband watches the game, you say, even though I'm terribly tired, I'll treat him like a king. I'll fix some pregame snacks, 
some halftime meals. I'll rub his feet between quarters. I'll do, I'll do everything he could possibly want, and then some. Woo! I think we're lacking for some and then some women in here. Jesus talked about living with the, that attitude in Matthew 5, verse 41. He said, if anybody forces you to go a mile, go two. Because Roman soldiers could force you to carry their pack one mile. That was a law. It was hated, but it was law. So they had to do it. So Jesus was saying, you have to do the first mile. You don't have a choice. The law requires it. So people only do with resentment only what they're required to do. But Jesus said, hey, guys, once in a while, when you get to the end of that one mile, just for the fun of it, blow the mind of that Roman soldier. Take the pack back and say, come on, Sparky, let's do two miles. Blow his mind. So in a world and society and culture where people generally only do what they're forced to do, what they have to do, do it voluntarily. Do it with joy, not grudgingly, right? Notice, let me pause. Jesus was not being legalistic here. He's not saying all the time, anybody asked you to do something, you must always do more. That's not what he said. It's not saying you are forced to tolerate abuse or injustice. There's a time to protest, and there's a time to say no and set boundaries. But Jesus is saying, if you really want to do life in the kingdom with the heart God wants you to have, live it like a servant. Find ways you can delight and surprise people with your servanthood. Knock them out occasionally, not grudgingly, not with bitterness of spirit. Do all that the Lord requires, and then some. Because it's the and then some, those kind of people who live and change the world. Jesus wanted all of us who follow Him to be and then some people. It wasn't supposed to be special. That's supposed to be part of who we are that would make us stand out. It wasn't our hairdo that's supposed to make us stand out or what we didn't do and what we did do a little bit more than anybody would ask of us or could be expected. In a book, Business and Leadership by author Tom Peters, he talks about an executive for a national retailer who wanted to buy a suit. His wife and daughter were Nordstrom fans, and they constantly urged him to shop there. But he always thought Nordstrom's would charge an arm and a leg for everything. But Nordstrom's policy to match anybody's price caused him a little bit of skepticism. But he needs a suit badly, and Nordstrom's was having a sale, so he figured at worst he didn't have much to lose. So he went. And he writes, he had to admit the service was good. He bought a suit on sale, another at full price. And I'm not getting a commercial price for this, okay? Nordstrom's is not paying me. Nordstrom's, Nordstrom's promised same-day alteration unless there's a sale. And during a sale, it's promised by the next day. So he comes back the next day at 5.45 p.m. to pick up the suits. He needed them for a trip that night. To his surprise, the salesman greeted him by name. The salesman then went upstairs to get his suits. But when he came back, he discovered they hadn't been finished. So without the suits and disappointed, he took off for a Monday meeting in Seattle and then off to Dallas for the big meeting of his trip. He checked into his hotel room and a message light informed him a package had come for him. The bellman brought it to his room. It was delivered FedEx for $98 prepaid. It was from Nordstrom's. In the package were his two suits 
And on top of that were three expensive silk ties thrown in for free. There was also a note of apology from the salesperson who had called his home, gotten his travel itinerary from one of his daughters. And with a smile of admiration, that man is now a believer. Nordstrom's did their job, and then some. You know, hiring these kind of people is how Nordstrom's has grown so successfully. Ask yourself if the place you shop would do that for you. See, see, it's a little bit more. The trouble with us is that we often settle for just getting by, just getting by kinds of performances, just getting by in our jobs, just getting by in our marriages, just enough not to divorce, just enough not to get fired. We settle for a thrift shop life when God's kind of calling us up spiritually to a Nordstrom kind of a life. Now, what happened to Rebecca as a result of what she did, this extra effort? Okay, let's say in here we were to slip up and ask a woman, hey, Gloria, if you do this job, it's going to take a few hours, terribly inconvenient and hard. But you'll go on the adventure of your life. You'll meet the man of your dreams. He'll be handsome, wealthy, and have good character. You will travel. You will be significant. You'll be the ancestor of Messiah. Your name will be celebrated throughout all history. All of this is yours if you'll just do this job that's going to take a couple of hours. Any single girls in here that would take that offer? How about some married women who would give it some serious thought? Well, sure you would, but this girl didn't have a clue what was going to happen to her. She went the second mile simply because she was a second mile person. Now, if you knew things were going to be great for you, yeah, then maybe you'd want to do it, but she didn't know it. Here's Jesus said, he said, give, it shall be given to you, for with the same measure you give, it'll be given back to you. In other words, when you give more than is required, generally you will receive more than you expect. Somewhere along the road, it'll come back. When you try to simply get by, you'll just get by. But when you give and then some, you receive and then some. Now, it's not always in a material resource, but in terms of quality of life, of joy, in terms of character. But if your goal is simply to get by, that's all you're ever going to do. Just get by. And then some is not a call to workaholism. It's not given as a technique for selfish career advancement or selfish ambition. You know, it's just the secret to abundant living that's created by joyful, freely chosen servanthood. Servanthood that asks the question, how can I delight and astound the people I'm serving? What can I do to wow you, to make you go, didn't expect that, wow. See, boy, wouldn't business be great if we had that kind of an attitude instead of just get by, bump along? See, going beyond what's required to what will delight. Now, there's three areas before we close we can all become and then some kind of people. First, your work. That could be school, office, your area of volunteer work. Statistics show the primary indicator of longevity in our lives is how well we enjoy our work. So are you an and then some person? Do you have an appropriate level of commitment to your work? If you don't, your favorite statement will be, that's not my job. If you're a student, it's going to be, will this be on the final? I mean, I'd hate to think I'm learning something that can make me smart, but won't be on the final. 
That's terrible. See, ask this question. What can I do tomorrow to become and then some kind of a person in my work life? Because work is a reflection of God's image. Work is not a curse. Yet Jesus said, be fruitful, multiply. Maybe you can give help at work to another person who needs some guidance, even though it's not your job. Maybe it's an attitude. You've been withdrawn or bitter, apathetic at work. You know, I'm just thinking a second. I was thinking about The Magic Kingdom. That's a book, and I read it several years ago. And the CEO of Disneyland was holding a leadership seminar, and somebody asked him, how many people do you have in maintenance at Disney World? And he said, 4,400. And the guy said, that's not possible. You couldn't have 4,400 people in maintenance. And then the CEO said, you don't understand. Everybody, including me, is in maintenance. We all clean up trash. Whoever sees it first picks it up. I love that. We're all servants. Yeah, we have different job descriptions primarily, but when we see something, first on the scene, get it done. If you see something, do something. If it's not possible to do it, say something, right? In this church, if you see it, something broken, something, say something. If you can do something, do it. See, Paul says, work wholeheartedly, not only when you're being watched, but as to God. In other words, as if God were your boss. Notice, that doesn't mean you tolerate exploitation or abuse in a workplace. It just means work matters because God notices what you do. When we work, we are to add value. You're not paid for how many years you're there. You're paid for the value you bring. Now, I know in socialistic uh, government bureaucracies, you get promoted based on your tenure or university. Tenure generally means I've been there a long time, but I could suck. It doesn't mean you're any good. Just because you're there a long time doesn't mean you're good. Would, would you at least agree with me on that? No. You ought to get promoted on the basis of the value you bring. And the more value you bring, the more your value goes up. Always seek to increase your value, no matter what you're doing. Make yourself irreplaceable, not because somebody will take your place. And some people who have less, less experience or age or years will jump past you because they bring more value to the job. So your focus ought to be, how can I make this even more valuable? How can I bring more value to the table in my work, in my job? Secondly, an and then some person in our relationships. Ask yourself, would the people I'm in relationship with say, I'm an and then some kind of a friend or a spouse or a parent? Are you willing to inconvenience yourself with the kids? And maybe uh, work so your mate could have a weekend off without a grudging spirit? Just a thought, occasionally. Do you just try to get by? Is your idea of sacrifice to hand over the TV remote on an occasion? Oh, what a sacrifice. What one step could you take to change this tomorrow? Would your spouse or your best friend say you're a second miler? Because we've got some. Boy, do we have some. Third and last, in your relationship with God. You know, a 10 would be, I diligently seek to know God better. I talk to people that can help me. Or you say, I listen to CDs or podcasts. I read a book. You pursue a life of prayer best you can. You're real serious about the fact God created you and that you know you're accountable to Him for your whole life. So a one would be, well, Rick, I'm just coasting. 
just getting by. I don't think about God very much. I don't think about His purpose on earth for me very much. If I have any questions about God, it would be, what are His minimum requirements? I'm just drifting. I don't think much or give it much effort about my purpose or life. So ask yourself, what one step could I take to become an and-then-some person in my relationship with God? Well, maybe read one book of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Simple. Get to know Jesus in a way you don't know personally. Maybe it's this week by becoming an and-then-some kind of a worshiper or giver. It's doing what God requires and a little bit more that you don't have to do. And the reason this is important is that we're made in the image of God. And God is an and-then-some kind of God. He made heaven and earth and then some galaxies and solar systems by the billions. Ever ask yourself why there are half a million different species of beetles? Not the band beetles. I mean, wouldn't 50,000 be enough? But he's just that kind of a God. God made Adam. Then he made Eve. He went from a man to and then some. God said, I can do better. God loves you. And then some. Jesus came to earth. And then some. Jesus died for your sin. And then some. He said, I've come that you might have life. And then some. Have it more abundantly. He doesn't give you just what you need. He gives you more than you need. So what kind of a person do you want to be? One of the finest and best cellists of the 20th century was Pablo Casas. Here's his picture. He dominated in his field. When he was an old man, his reputation and legacy very secure, he still practiced eight hours a day. And somebody asked him, Pablo, you're already the best cellist in the world. Why do you practice eight hours a day at your age? He said, because I think I'm getting better. I love that. So which path are you going to choose? The road less traveled, bump along, hang in there, just get by? The path of least resistance? That's your choice. See, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your strength. Do it and then some. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.